Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Hello, everybody. This is Terry from Texas, and welcome to another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. I'm sorry I've been missing so much lately. Uh, Life intrudes. That's all I can say. Thanks for being here, though, and I hope you enjoy the show. First off, I want to I want to talk about myself and my wife for a moment. Today, August second, is our 35th wedding anniversary, and you know I ask her sometimes, "Honey, why do you stick with me with all the garbage that I've come up with?" And she says because I don't believe in divorce. And I said, well, that's a good thing. She said, no, I do believe in murder. Anyway, uh, 35 years ago this afternoon, we stood in front of friends and family and said our vows to each other, and we've been married ever since. And no kids, but we have ghosts and a cat, and I guess that's enough. And we have y'all. Thank you for being here. The bad thing about it is, this is our 35th anniversary, and tomorrow I turn 61. Anyway, this week's show, uh, I've chosen a couple of off-the-wall things. One of the most enduring tales of lost treasure in the southwest of the United States involves the so-called Lost Dutchman's Mine. The Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine, also known by similar names, is, according to legend, a rich gold mine hidden in the southwestern United States. The location is generally believed to be in the Superstition Mountains near Apache Junction, which is east of Phoenix, Arizona. There have been many stories about how to find the mine, and each year people search for the mine, and some have died on the search. Robert Blair wrote, there have been at least four legendary lost Dutchman's gold mines in the American West, including the famed superstition mine of Jacob Waltz. One lost Dutchman's mine is said to be in Colorado. Another is said to be in California, and the last two are said to be located in Arizona. Tales of these other lost Dutchman's mines can be traced to at least the 1870s. The earliest Lost Dutchman's Mine in Arizona was said to have been near Wickenburg 
about 110 miles northwest of the Superstition Mountains. A Dutchman was allegedly discovered dead in the desert near Wickenburg in the 1870s alongside saddlebags filled with gold. Blair suggests that fragments of this legend have perhaps become attached to the mythical mine of Jacob Waltz. The mine is named after this Jacob Waltz, who is a German immigrant. He lived from around 1810 to 1891, and he purportedly discovered it in the 19th century and very well kept its location a secret. Now, Dutchman is a wrong word here, but it makes sense in the time frame. Dutchman was a common American term for a German. They heard Dutch in English when the German pronunciation of the word would be Deutsch. For instance, Deutschland is Germany, but Dutch is distinctively Holland, the Netherlands, you know, the, the little Dutch boy that put his finger in the dike and, and saved the whole town. Deutsch is German. It's not a reference to the Dutch people, it's German. So. Yet in another version of the tale, two or more U.S. Army soldiers are said to have discovered a vein of almost pure gold in or near the Superstition Mountains. The soldiers are alleged to have presented some of the gold, but to have been killed or to have vanished soon after. This account is usually dated to about 1870. This story may have its roots in the efforts of three U.S. soldiers to locate gold in an area of New Mexico based on an, an allegedly true story related to them by a Dr. Thorne of New Mexico. The Lost Dutchman's Mine is perhaps the most famous lost mine in American history. Arizona place name expert Bird Granger, B-Y-R-D Granger, G-R-A-N-G-E-R, wrote as of 1977, the Lost Dutchman story has been printed or cited at least six times more often than two other fairly well-known tales, which are the story of Captain Kidd's lost treasure, the pirate, and the story of the lost pegleg mine in California. People have been seeking the lost Dutchman's mine since at least 1892, while according to one estimate, 9,000 people annually made or make some effort to locate the Dutchman's mine. Former Arizona Attorney General Robert K. Corbin is among those who have looked for the mine. Now enter the Peralta Stones. Now anybody that knows anything about the Southwest United States should recognize the name Peralta and I'll get into that in a little bit. The Peralta Stones are a set of engraved stones and some people believe they indicate the location of the famous Dutchman's Mine in Arizona. The stones are named for the Peralta family, and here comes the explanation as to why it's familiar. Said to be an old and powerful Mexican family, Peralta is a common Hispanic surname, though. Some people named Peralta owned a cattle ranch that included what is now Oakland, California at the time of the Mexican-American War. 
Pedro de Peralta was the governor of the Spanish territory in New Mexico and picked the site for Santa Fe. A particular con man named James Rivas popularized the idea of a rich Peralta family in Arizona in 1882 when he tried to press his claim by bloodline on the phony Peralta Spanish land grant which included a huge swath of Arizona and New Mexico including the Superstition Mountains. Rivas's forged Peralta genealogy was exposed and as it should be he served a prison sentence for fraud. According to current legend though but not supported by the historical record some Peraltas mined in the superstitions. The first written reference to a Peralta mine in the superstitions was in 1895 by writer Pierpont C. Bicknell. The stones consist of two red sandstone tablets and a heart-shaped rock made of red quartzite. Each block is approximately eight and a half inches by 14 inches and two inches thick and they weigh about 25 pounds each. Each red sandstone block is carved in one long line. When the two blocks are placed side by side and the stone heart is inserted, the long line has 18 dots pecked into it. This style of map is known as a post-road map, and it is a style used in Mexico and Spain during the Mexican-American War. Inscribed on the stones is the date 1847, and one stone contains a sunken relief of a heart into which the heart-shaped stone fits perfectly. The back of the stone that the heart stone fits in has the outline of a cross carved into it. There is confusion about the discovery of the Peralta stones though. Some say they were found by a man named Jack. You know, everybody knows Jack. And those that don't know Jack don't need to be involved. In 1956, of course, one says 1952 and another says 1949. And they found them near the main highway that goes southeast from Apache Junction, Arizona, into the vicinity of Black Point. Another item found at this site is known as the Latin Heart. The two red sandstone map pieces are displayed with a third white sandstone of similar size and weight as the red ones. The history of the white stone was cited by an author using the name Amzula. This Amazula cites the history in the Superstition Mountain Journal, issue 27 of 2009. He attributes the original citation to M. Craig Roberts. Mr. Roberts' article is titled History of the Chain of Possession of the Stone Maps. It's a scorcher. The journal article is a history of the white stone. The white sandstone has a side showing a priest who is assembling the Peralta stones to form the map. The reverse side is known as the horse map. The priest's stone contains Spanish text that states that to find the gold, you must find the heart. The story of the Peralta stones discovery and the stones themselves are not very convincing to most researchers. I can understand why. The engravings appear to have been created using modern power tools with modern symbols and modern Spanish. Father Charles Pulser, 
an ethno-historian associated with the Arizona State Museum, is convinced the stones are a fake, among other reasons, he says, that the modern Valentine-shaped symbol used to denote a heart was a symbol unknown to 19th century Spaniards. According to local lore, the stones contain a map indicating the location of the lost Dutchman's gold mine. Various claims have been made about the location of the gold mine based on an interpretation of the stones, and such claims appear at regular intervals, though no one has yet recovered a flake of Jacob Walt's gold. Claims about interpretations of the map are many, as are accounts of the stone's origins, and most of these claims are made by self-publishing writers. You know, you write a book, you have an opinion, you you produce it. You don't say, oh, this is my opinion and it may be wrong, but you say, this is one opinion. According to Lon Safko, the stones were made by the Peralta family and handed down for generations. Danny Adams, in 2005, read the map as a coded message and claims the stones were made by Ted de Grazia a painter and art collector rumored to have burned or buried a collection of art worth $5 million rather than pay taxes on his property. Adams claims one of the stones reads, Be ready, boy, are on a map on Arizona County scale. Scale map. That's clear. And aided by numerological analysis locates the mine in Upper Labarge Canyon. The treasure of paintings, supposedly hidden in the mine, is also connected, somehow, to a conspiracy of 50 businessmen from the Phoenix area to hide de Grazia's work. In 2007, William and Michael Johnson, originally from Massachusetts, said that they had identified a privately owned cave as the mine based on the clues left in the Peralta stones. No further word. The Peralta stones were held at the Arizona Museum of Natural History in Mesa, Arizona, previously known as the Mesa Southwest Museum. In June of 2009, they were to go on an extended display at the Superstition Mountain Museum in Apache Junction, Arizona. As of September 2012, the stones are now back at the Arizona Museum of Natural History. In July 2015, Ryan Gordon acquired the original manuscript written by Travis Tumlinson titled Challenge for Superstition Gold. The manuscript details Travis's discovery of the stone maps, his efforts to decode them, and his journey through the superstitions with family and friends. Now, to me, that's how you go looking for treasure. You bring the whole family and a boodle of friends. The manuscript will be printed in multiple different languages and supposedly will be ready in early 2016. I don't know if it was. Apparently, it says in part, the ability to read these signs oft times depends upon the imagination of the person attempting to do the reading. He must put himself in the place of the person that was hiding the treasure and attempt to think as he did 
and at that time. The history of treasure symbols is in most part lost. Most treasure symbols created out of a need of personal identity and represent strong psychological ties to superstition and religion. I don't know how I feel about treasure tales. It seems that much like the plot of National Treasure, they involve clue after clue after clue with little to show for all the time spent chasing the treasure. Speaking of a national treasure, this story is about one. Do you know who John James Audubon was? He was the naturalist that went throughout the country as we had it at the time and identified birds and painted them with some professionalism, some, some very good ability. His Birds of America is an incredible feat in large part thanks to how comprehensive the 435 watercolor paintings are for their era. Audubon wasn't just working at a time when European Americans didn't know the breadth of American bird life. They didn't really know the extent of America itself either. Painted during the early 1800s with little more than a rifle, which to me sounds like it would have been messy, so I think he really used paintbrushes and some friends help. Audubon was able to correctly distinguish and paint to scale more than 400 distinct species, more than half of our native birds. Now one of the ways he did this, you're not going to like, he shot a bunch of them and brought them home. He had friends shoot birds and bring them over to him. But apparently that's how artists work. For Audubon, every unusual song could signal a new bird. Every isolated swamp or mountain range could host species no ornithologist, that's a bird scientist, has ever seen before. All that possibility must have been exhilarating, perhaps maddening even. To avoid missing out, he shot heaps of birds and compatriots exploring far-flung regions of the continent brought him heaps more. How would you like to work in a building and have a bunch of dead birds? inside it. Among the messes of these dead birds he had to sort through were weird-looking juveniles. Maybe their color wasn't up to par with the adults. Birds with plumage anomalies. Maybe their feathers went this way instead of that. Or even the occasional hybrid. Could have been two species got together and went hubba hubba and you know there you go. So it's no wonder the man didn't get everything right. And indeed, there are several birds that he painted and explained in Birds of America that are not, in fact, actual species. Some are immature birds mistaken for adults of a new species. The mighty Washington's eagle was, in all likelihood, an immature bald eagle. Some were female birds that didn't look anything like their male partners. Selby's flycatcher was a female hooded warbler, so that was one error he made. Others were, well, no one really knows what they were. Audubon painted a handful of birds that aren't an exact match for anything we've currently got. These are Audubon's mystery birds. Maybe they're just mistaken plumages, like the eagle or the flycatcher. 
and we still can't sort it out. Maybe they are birds that Audubon just painted poorly, or from a vague memory, or from a partially decomposed corpse. Maybe they're species that have gone extinct since Audubon painted them. They've identified a few that that was the case. There certainly are a bunch of those, sadly, including Bachman's Warbler, the Ivory-Billed Woodpecker, the Passenger Pigeon, and Carolina Parakeet. It is certainly possible that some already range-restricted species could have been wiped out before conservationists even knew to notice. Or maybe these birds are still out there somewhere, flitting around unseen. In any case, it's worth taking a look. Here's a rundown Audubon's mystery birds and what the likely scenario behind each one might be. Named for its dark cap and streaking, not unfortunately because it was fizzy on the tongue, Audubon painted his carbonated warbler from two individuals he shot in Kentucky in 1811. He himself was uncertain about its species, admitting he thought the birds were young, or as he put it, not in full plumage, as they had no part of their dress seemingly complete. Field guide author David Allen Sibley took an artistic angle to bring further skepticism to the birds in a fascinating blog post from 2008. Sibley pointed out several structural oddities and impossibilities in Audubon's renderings. Several feather groups were arranged incorrectly or are misshapen. The painting lacks the detail present in Audubon's other drawings. Sibley takes these errors and the imprecisions to mean that Audubon might not have been looking at actual specimens when he painted them. There may be a benign explanation for the poor quality of the painting. Audubon recounts in his ornithological biography that 200 of his original paintings were eaten by rats in 1812, a catastrophe that nearly put a stop to his researches in ornithology. Audubon's original cerulean warbler drawing was lost this way, so that the carbonated warbler could have been in there as well, and perhaps he repainted it from memory of the original bird. Another possibility, as pointed out by the writer Scott Wiedensall in the comments to the Sibley blog, is that some of the ornithological discrepancies might be the result of later artists who engraved and colored the printing plates used to produce the final images. Unless one of these birds is rediscovered, we'll never know. Best guess. Sibley didn't name a species because with all the errors in the painting, who knows what the actual specimen looked like. If the painting did have a real-life model, the black cap, wing bars, and general pattern of streaking are pretty good matches for black pole warblers, except that those birds are black and white, not yellow. However, there can be a lot of variation in black poles, including some yellow-tinged birds. As much as everyone would enjoy another adorable kinglet species in the world, Cuvier's kinglet hasn't resurfaced since Audubon supposedly shot one in Pennsylvania in 1812 and named it after the famous French zoologist. Even Audubon admitted the bird was very similar 
two ruby-crowned and gold-crowned kinglets, admitting that even he didn't know if it was a different species until he picked it up off the ground. Unlike those other species, though, per Audubon's rendering, Cuvier's kinglet had a dark forehead with the dark head stripes of the golden-crowned kinglet, except it had a red crown. Despite never seeing another specimen, Audubon kept up hope of the bird being rediscovered, writing other ornithologists to inquire about any odd kinglets they might have turned up. Alas, none ever has. Best guess? The plumage is really not different from a golden-crowned kinglet, whose head feathers are often darker than their name suggests. Cuvier's kinglet was probably just a golden crown, according to the American Ornithologist Union. The small-headed flycatcher and the Blue Mountain Warbler appear together with other small birds on a print that, I think it's fair to say, does not rank with Audubon's masterpieces. Both birds look stiff and lack detail, and it's possible that Audubon had neither specimen in front of him when he painted them. Both species likely owe their presence in Birds of America to Audubon's chief rival of the time, Alexander Wilson. After a brief imprisonment for writing satirical poems in his native Scotland, Wilson bailed and emigrated to America in 1794 and eventually set out to paint all the birds of his new home. He published the first volume of American Ornithology in 1808, years before Audubon's far superior paintings were published, and continued painting until his death in 1813. The Blue Mountain Warbler was a bird that Wilson claimed to have shot in the Blue Mountains of Virginia. Audubon never saw one alive, but claims to have gotten a hold of a specimen from the Council of the Zoological Society of London, and which had come from California. Sounds like Audubon was jealous that Wilson found a bird he couldn't, but claimed he had one in the same way some people claim to have a long-distance girlfriend. It's possible that Audubon had only Wilson's painting to go off of. The story is reversed for the small-headed flycatcher, Audubon claims that Wilson copied it from him. Audubon painted his from a specimen he shot in Kentucky in 1808, a painting he later showed to Wilson. Yeah, they were sort of frenemies. The bird showed up in later works by Wilson, who claimed he had seen some in New Jersey and shot one in an orchard somewhere. Audubon didn't believe him and regretted showing him the earlier drawing. The trouble is, neither of these stories shed any light on just what the heck these birds actually were, or if they really existed. The descriptions given by the men accompanying the artwork point to a wood warbler of some kind, but the plumages don't match anything exactly. Best guess? No easy answers on these two. The 19th century ornithologist Elliot Coase suggested that the Blue Mountain Warbler was just a young black-throated green warbler, or maybe, if the specimen did actually come from California, a young Townsend's Warbler. As for the small-headed flycatcher, Coe's doubted it existence at all, chalking it up to a misunderstanding between Wilson and Audubon, and calling the whole thing a tissue of surmises. 
on the same plate as the small-headed flycatcher and the blue mountain warbler is another mystery bird Bartram's Vireo Audubon claims that this bird must often be confounded with or mistaken for the red-eyed Vireo which makes sense because it looks exactly like one the remarkable difference between Bart Bartram's and red-eyed Vireos supposedly is that Bartram's stays in thickets low to the ground while red-eyed sing from the treetops. Best guess is the red-eyed vireo. Townsend's bunting is a mystery that may have been recently solved. In 1833, a Pennsylvania man named John Townsend shot a bird near Philadelphia that neither he nor Audubon had ever seen. It was built like a sparrow, a strong conical bill, but had a white throat and gray chest unlike any known species. The men figured it was a new bird and it was named after its discoverer. Unlike any of the other birds on this list though, the specimen still exists. It's in the Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. Ornithologist Kenneth Parks studied the specimen in 1985 and in consulting with field notes from Townsend concluded that the bunting was simply an aberrant plumaged dick thistle. But in 2014, the case was reopened when images of a dead ringer for a Townsend's bunting were taken in Ontario, Canada. Thanks to an alert birder with a fast shutter finger, the whole birding world was able to get a look. When the dust had settled and all the experts weighed in, the consensus was an aberrant plumaged dick thistle. Still, as only the second known example of this plumage in history, the first one coming from Audubon himself, this was a fun moment. Best guess? Sorry guys, it really was an aberrant plumaged dick thistle. These mysterious birds are well known to many a serious birder. Tucked into the back of the mind, in hopes of some future miraculous rediscovery. It's one of the true joys of birding. You never quite know what you're going to find out there, and if you do happen upon something crazy, take a quick shot, ideally with a camera and not a rifle. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour. And Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories. Nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your 
App Store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.